Cult Collectibles is the number one site for historical items from the People's Temple, Heaven's Gate, Om Shinrikyo, and many other cults that you never even knew existed. Hundreds of hours of work have gone into curating our collection of unique and one-of-a-kind items from the dark history of these groups. We also have a large selection of true crime memorabilia from such notorious cases as Edmund Kemper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, and many more. We add new items to the site every week and post sales and auctions on our Instagram at Cult Collectibles. So visit us on the web at cultcollectibles.org today. Hello, and welcome to the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and for the next two weeks, I have something really special for you guys. Today's episode will be the first segment in a two-part installment exploring murderbilia collecting and inmate pen pal culture. Today, I'm sitting here over Skype with Robert, the owner of Cult Collectibles. How are you doing today, man? I am... Great. How are you? <laughs> Doing good. Thanks for taking the time to sit and talk with me today. Uh-huh. Um, so for those listening who may not be familiar with who you are and the work that you do, can you give us like a brief introduction? Yeah, so I <clears throat> run callcollectibles.org um, by myself. I, I, I do the whole store, the whole sourcing, buying and selling like a one-person business. Um, uh, yeah, I've collected for quite a while and then it kind of um i was selling collectibles online for work anyway not related to true crime or cults i was doing like trading cards and vintage action figures and stuff and uh, thrifting and buying and selling like that and then it kind of they kind of both accidentally merged together and then this is my main thing i do now right on um so i kind of want to get to the beginning i mean you talked about that you were already working in collecting how did you first uh kind of get introduced or interested in true crime and serial killers um was there like a specific case that you found out about that stuck with you um when it comes to <clears throat> like true crime in general the first case that really was uh uh really got me into it was back when i was in high school i was kind of like a I guess, I guess edgelord is the dated term now for it, but I was like like a goth kid, really into like weird stuff, creepy stuff. And um, I was super into Rammstein. And they have a song about Armin Midas, the German cannibal. And then through listening to them, then finding out that story, then researching that story, I read some books upon on it. And then that kind of just led to a spiral of other true crime cases and other cannibalism cases. And that was the first one that really um, caught my attention. And then from there, I kind of always had an interest in true crime stuff. And then um, the cult stuff uh, came about when I was, which was like my big passion for the longest time, just uh, called things, uh, was later on. I, I watched a documentary about Jonestown, and I really didn't know much about it outside of like 
its um, place in popular culture, you know, kind of references. And I thought it was so crazy that, like, this event was so huge, but all anyone really talked about or focused on was, you know, the suicides. And there was 20 or 30 or 40 years of history before that of the group, you know, all over the States in different areas doing different things. Um, and finding out there was all that history there and wanting to learn about like this huge time period that was blank from, um, not necessarily blank from history, but you know, you got to look into it if you want to learn anything about those, about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started kind of just getting into research mode because I was interested in it and then everything just kind of spiraled and I ended up sort of getting this semi-encyclopedia knowledge of, of different times and dates and, and events for all these groups and uh, just growing growing from there as like, as like a, a passion for studying. So what was it? Like, what was the evolution? Like, you're you're sitting here and you're researching all of these different topics. When did you make the decision? You're like, I want to actually try to get a physical, tangible item from uh, these different events. Uh, what what made you? What was something that you're like? I, I want to get an actual artifact from this. Um, I don't. I can't remember exactly what inspired me to do it, but something. Um, an envelope came up on eBay. It was like an envelope for a. Um, what do you call it? It's like a donation envelope. So the People's Temple would have sent them out to Hebel and then you'd send it back with uh, uh, money in it as a donation to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, solicitation envelope, I guess. Uh, one of them came up and it just said Reverend or Pastor Jim Jones on it in like this nice old Gothic font. Uh, and I messaged somebody I knew who had some kind of true crime and cult stuff. Just I, I just saw, followed them on Instagram. I said, "Hey, is this legit? Like, this is a this is an interesting thing. Is this like a real item from back then?" And he told me, "Yeah, you know, there's an auction uh, uh, after the suicide. There was an auction in California, and they sold all their assets. So there's some stuff floating around." Um, and I thought it was super neat, and it was like a hundred bucks at the time. Uh, so I picked it up, and I was like, "Yeah, this is like a cool little piece of history." Back then, I wasn't really too much of a, a collector of anything specific. I just kind of like had a lot of eccentric little items. Um, but from that, I said, okay, well, you know, if I could, if I got this for so cheap, there must be like magazines and newspapers and other small things um, out there that I can, that I can get where I'm going to have, you know, like each magazine will have different photos. Maybe they haven't been republished since then uh, or even books on the topic have information that other books don't. So I kind of wanted to just um, create like a bit of a, a archive of all the, print media for mm-hmm. these for um jonestown specifically uh and then once i kind of got to the end of okay there's not really any more magazines and books i looked into more personal items and then i looked into other cults i was looking into heaven's gate and um branch davidians and it just it, it just sort of like snowballed from there um but this was like this was five years before i was ever selling anything or, or even getting involved with true crime stuff it was just cults and then I kind of had a foundation collecting that stuff and it sort of um, helped me get contacts and meet people within the true crime world and then start getting into that uh, hobby. So how did this, like, what was the pipeline from you um, basically 
collecting these as a hobby on your own and then you eventually getting to a point where you're like, I'm going to open up my own shop and start selling these items. Um, so I was working full time, uh, at like a real job. Um, like not, not self-employed. I had like a, reg a regular day job and I was buying and selling lots of stuff at thrift stores to, uh, uh, they're picking up stuff to sell on eBay. Um, cause I, I had been for like 15 years, I'd been an avid thrifter. I would buy, uh, video games or, or trading cards or lots of different things. I, I got all these little collections of stuff from all the years and I figured, okay, well, I, if I'm going out this much and I can hunt all this stuff, I'm sure I could sell some of it. The big roadblock for me was learning shipping. I was like, oh, I don't want to have to learn that. As soon as I start doing this in a serious way, it's not going to be fun anymore. Um, but then as I started to do it more and more and make a bit of money and sell things, it became fun to do that, um, to do it just for the sake of, uh, uh, making a bit of money, which I could put back into other collections or other things. Um, anyway, and this was, this ramped up to the point where I was like going every single day after work, I would be thrifting at two or three places and I would be packing and sending orders. Um, and I was getting a lot of encouragement at work from a few people I know saying like, Hey, you could do this full time. Like there's tons of people who just buy and sell things like that for work and you don't really have a real job. They don't have a boss, but I was always worried about the security, about like the benefits and having, um, <clears throat> steady income anyway. And then COVID hit actually when I, right at the same time I started the website. So I, um, I had a set of OJ Simpson pogs cause I made a bunch of like novelty OJ stuff back in the nineties. Mm -hmm. I had them on eBay and it was taken down and my account got flagged and it was like, Hey, this is, um, you know, we don't like to have stuff that promotes crime, real crimes or, or anything like that, or real acts of violence. So we're going to take it down. And I figured, well, I have, you know, some novelty stuff, some magazines I can make my own website and put those on there. And, um, I'm not going to be paying any fees. And I'm also can kind of curate a more specific, uh, collection of stuff. Um, so I started doing that, just kind of getting that organized and having a little bit of a spread there. And then it ended up taking off and I was meeting a lot more people and buying a lot more things. And I started, um, yeah, like I was saying, it was sort of when COVID started. So my work shut down for a little bit and I was focusing on this a lot. And then by the time things were starting up to go back to work, I was too busy with eBay and with the website to really, um, have a day job. So I just kind of stuck with it, uh, 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 taking a bit of a risk, like thinking, you know, this could work out. This could, who knows, there's a lot of people who sell this kind of stuff. So I don't know if it would really, if I have enough knowledge or enough, um, sources to find things, but, uh, I got very lucky with it. Um, and was able to kind of stick with that full time. So I still I still have my eBay store for some stuff, but for the most part, I I focus pretty much all my time on sourcing things for um, call collectibles now. Well, congratulations, man. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, where does a lot of your inventory come from? Because you, uh, from talking with you, you talked about you buy kind of like things in bulk. Um, what are some of your, without like giving anything away, what are some of your resources on where you obtain a lot of these things it's it's all over the place it's a really um really diverse picking like i don't 
I used to get up in the morning and I would just check eBay for certain search words and I would um, <clears throat> check a few smaller sites, a few used bookstores and just things that I had seen in the past. They had interesting items. Um, but it's, it's really uh, like, I feel like the only way it's sustainable is having tons of different areas that I pull from. So I, I'll find things locally quite often or I'll, um, I'll get in contact with people directly that maybe had some connection to a certain crime or a cult or, or uh, other collectors that have a lot of stuff and they're trying to get rid of, um, you know, maybe they're trying to get a bigger piece. They're getting rid of some smaller stuff. Um, but it's, it's really all over the place. I've had people reach out to me through email on the site or through Instagram who have no kind of, um, no kind of connection to this world of, of collecting at all. And they just like, Hey, you know, my uncle was involved with this group or, uh, my brother knew these people and he has these things, um, which are always the best. Cause then you find really weird stuff that you'd never see anywhere else. Uh, but it's really like, I'd say 75% of my day is just looking around for certain places or trying to find new sources or brainstorming ideas of where I can look and who I can reach out to, to find certain things. Do you ever have to worry about uh, people selling counterfeits? Like, what's the process to ensure that what you have is legitimate? <clears throat> um, it, it, it's kind of just based on experience. Uh, for me, I know that certain things, it's not worth faking. Like, you know, if you could fake a letter from somebody or a document that would make you $20, $25, the amount of effort you're putting in to do that is going to far outweigh any kind of profit you would make. Mm -hmm. Um and when it comes to any any large items, when it when it when you're looking at like, for instance, Jonestown original documents from there, or from letters from like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer or Richard Ramirez, kind of any bigger names, any bigger historical significance, it's kind of um, I'll, I'll sometimes check with I know people who you know this guy collects only from this person, this guy collects only Dahmer, this guy collects only Gacy. Um, if there's anything that looks a little suspect or strange, I will uh, check in with one of the unofficial experts, right? Because um, mm -hmm. there isn't really any sort of real like regulation or certification out there. It's kind of just like a mix of gut feeling and um, um, and experience. Like there are there are people I'm sure who have tried to fake things and rip people off and make money, but it's. Um, Generally, somebody does something like that once and they get a reputation or even that item itself will get a reputation and 25 years later, people will be like, hey, 25 years ago, so-and-so made a bunch of fakes of this thing. So that's probably one of those. Like, um, I've, I've personally never had issues running into fake stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it, for me, it just kind of seems like there's certain common sense things um, that you look for. But I think I, I kind of carry that over from collecting uh, uh, trading cards and uh, like retro video games and stuff from years ago is that there's certain things you always want to do to make sure that you're buying authentic stuff and not and not uh, putting a lot of money into face right yeah we had a within um, the extreme like horror community we had like kind of a big situation happen because unearth films came out with a film called torment and they released some some set that was supposed to have Gacy letters in them and it came out later that the the letters were fake and uh so 
they had to go and hunt more letters down. And so I would assume that that wouldn't be something that happens often, but I, but like that's, that situation made me think like that there might be people out there that are doing shit like that. Yeah. If, if you find certain things that like way too good of a price or, or, you know, somebody has a, a hundred of the same exact item. That's a very rare item. You know, there's, there's a lot of red, I don't know that situation specifically, but there's some red flags to look for. Yeah. Um, and obviously there's some things that are easier. Like if you had a, for instance, a case letter that was typed with just a signature, it would probably be a bit easier to fake that. But if I'm going to be spending, uh, um, uh, a larger amount of money on an item, right. Then I'm going to want an envelope with it too. And the envelope's going to have stamps from the prison, um, and the stamps are going to be dated and it's going to line up with when that person was there. There's a lot of little things that, uh, that, that, uh, build the provenance behind an item. Yeah. Um, what are some of the more high valued items that you've sold over the years, uh, related to murderabilia kind of stuff? Um, let me, I have a little gallery on my site. Let me look it up so I can refresh my memory a bit. Um, I like to keep track of some of the more interesting things because like, for instance, Richard Ramirez letters, right? Mm-hmm. They're cool, but there's thousands of them out there, you know, but there's some stuff that's in very short supply um, or even like one of a kind items. So that's always the stuff that interests me. Um, one of the coolest, it was a pricey item and it was like an, ex- it was super hard to find and theoretically you know possibly one of the only ones left was a um wanted poster from the uh om shinrikyo subway attacks oh that's Um, awesome sorry go ahead i said that's awesome that's cool yeah so it's it's like a large a large glossy poster it's got like the tack holes in it from when it was put up um and something like that like somebody in japan in 1995 would have had to you know, pull that off of a, a subway station somewhere, like a, a community poster board or something, and then fold it and save it in good condition for 20 years, 25 years or whatever. And then it happens to get mixed in with a lot of papers for sale somewhere else, right? Like maybe somebody donated it to a thrift store or like just was getting rid of old drunk and selling it online. But that one specifically, like, Om Shinrikyo, they published a ton of books and, and they had a lot of like merch. They had stores even of, of stuff, but to find one of the wanted posters is like, um, you know, it was like an, a thing that was out in the world for a very small period of time. And I doubt really many people thought to, to, uh, save one. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's definitely like a hard find for sure. I mean, those are things that I have always like fantasized about finding, you know, like maybe an original, a wanted poster for any particular person would be so so cool to find. Yeah, well, those those even the FBI posters for for like uh, uh, guys in the states they're kind of hard to come by. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of the things the things that I find are the most um, interesting to hunt for are items that people didn't really think would have had significance at the time, right? Like, um, yeah, like things that um you wouldn't think oh i know this is going to have some historical significance i'll save this for 25 years in a storage locker and then eventually it's going to um be interesting to somebody right Mm -hmm. 
like a, a lot of people, I think, uh, overlook that and they're looking for, oh, you know, a letter from this guy or a, a crime scene photo from this guy. But there's a lot of um, my favorite things to hunt and sell are the more kind of weird one offs and the and the the unusual things that like have just been sitting in a in an old store for 25 years nobody really thought about it right yeah that's that's actually something that uh once i kind of discovered the whole murderabilia collecting community like after an event happens or a tragedy happens if there's ever any magazines or anything like that i like will buy like a couple copies of it just because you don't know if it's going to gain value later like after the uh, aurora uh, theater shooting with james holmes i like bought a bunch of stuff just because i was like well maybe this will be of significance later so yeah yeah for sure and, and it even like adds to your um adds to your uh you know your own personal collection like my my own my personal collection of stuff i have a lot of little unique items that might not be like the craziest most rare thing or they might be like a <clears throat> you know a modern day a modern day um newspaper or a clipping or an article and stuff but it's got cool significance to me and then you know you never know when netflix is going to do a documentary or something and then all of a sudden it's going to be super sought after right yeah yeah definitely like um the Alyssa lamb thing like i was i always thought Alyssa lamb was interesting but then after that documentary came out on netflix it like exploded and uh yeah it's it's interesting that something could be so such a small I don't know a small topic within the zeitgeist of the world <laughs> and then it com- a documentary mm-hmm. comes out and then it, it blows up yeah well that one specifically actually um is interesting because i live in vancouver so i uh you know remember back when that happened seeing the missing posters up and around and there's like i would see like articles from uh the school she was at mm-hmm. uh kind of get momentum in newspapers or in message boards or whatever um, and it was really connected to uh, uh, Vancouver, right? And now there's um, like she's she's buried out during here now. So the, the that whole story kind of comes full circle back to uh, to where I am, you know. Like yeah. Canada itself is is a bit of a um, it's it's got a bit of a smaller true crime kind of history to it, but because of that there's a lot of cases i think that are super interesting um be, being here you know i have a lot more access and exposure to a lot of stuff that isn't as uh prominent in the states and this story specifically wasn't i don't think it wasn't a big a story in the states at all until the documentary came out yeah it was it was from what i saw there was a lot of like mystery especially with like the elevator footage Mm-hmm. Um, that got like popularity on YouTube, but I I never saw people really talking about it until until that documentary came out. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought up your your personal collection. I was wondering, uh, what are some of the holy grail items that you have that are that are important to you? Um, I've got, <clears throat> I mean, I've got quite a few. I've got a lot of personal stuff, personal letters, and and personal items I've gotten from people that are, um, important, but they're kind of locked out, locked away in like a private vault, you know, that's like <laughs> my, the, the secret stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, there's, 
two big collections and one eBay find that I had that are kind of like really stick out for me because it was right at the moment of me like getting momentum and getting super passionate about things and I found these really crazy items that um I'm always going to have those memories as like kind of the foundation of my business was when I was right around me finding these things um the first was on eBay I found a yearbook signed by Marshall Applewhite from Heaven's Gate um from in the from in the 60s when he was in high school I believe um and that was like I I had gone through and made a bunch of dummy accounts on on alumni sites to look through old yearbooks page by page to find photos and see what photos he was in and find the locations and the years you know and then I went and went on eBay and found uh, uh, sellers who deal in vintage books in those areas and talked to people and asked about yearbooks and it was a lot of work to um a lot of work to find the specific yearbooks and then buying them was like I was just buying them like cool it's got a photo in it you know maybe one day if I buy dozens and dozens and dozens of these I'll I'll find a signed one I think the second one I ever tracked down was had a signature in it um wow yeah which is very exciting that's like a that's like a sentimental one for sure um I've I've also got the other two things are Heaven's Gate related as well because that was I was super into looking for Heaven's Gate stuff kind of right when I was um building momentum mm-hmm. with the shop um the first was a collection from uh one of the former members who uh he wasn't with the group at the time of the suicides but he took his life a year later to like to join them um in his words but but he started a little uh, mail order business in the time period between their suicides and his suicide and he so this was in 1997 1998 he was selling some stuff online some books and mugs and t-shirts and mouse pads and um um cd-roms with the kind of information of the of about heaven's gate he was sort, sort of trying to clear their name you know trying to get the word out like hey these you know i know it seems crazy but we don't think we're crazy these are like legitimate smart people who feel this is right and this is what they want to do and so he spent a year kind of campaigning for that um and because it was like an early mail order internet thing it didn't really take off like crazy like it's not a lot of the stuff out there mm-hmm. uh but i was able to um through a series of, of posts online and communications I, I met somebody who had uh some of the inventory from the store and only a couple of those things had ever been seen in collections before um I knew somebody who had this like framed print that he sold. Um, but anyway, when I tracked it down and got the collection, there were some really rare books in there that he had published. Um, <clears throat> the standout individual thing was a, a mug that he sold on the uh, on the website. Mm-hmm. It's the Heaven's Gate logo. It says, uh, what if they're right? Um, in just big black letters in the bottom. Uh, and it's, it's nothing crazy. Like it was just like a, a custom mug he had printed, but because it had you know the mug was printed by a guy who was actually a member of the group back in the 90s and it survived somehow in a in a, in a box in an attic for that long you know um that that's one of yeah that's the one that's that mug i'm always going to keep um the third thing i was talking about was um this is also in the same in the same few months which is extremely 
extremely lucky, but I uh, met somebody whose uncle had been at the um, estate auction in 1999, where mm-hmm. they they sold all the bunk beds and they sold all the all the stuff from inside the Heaven's Gate mansion to raise money for the uh, families, and because they just had had it in storage since then, uh, and he bought a whole pallet of uh, books from like their personal library. And um, I guess he, he had kept some of them and stored some of them. So he had a box of them left. And then his one of his family members found it years later and was like, hey, you know, I don't really know much about this, but um, I'm trying to find experts who can help me assess the value or whatever. Uh, so I got in contact with them and I um, received part of the collection to help them sell it and uh, uh, got a book in um, as payment. You know, I said, well, you know, I'm interested in this book, so I'll take that and I'll sell the rest and, and do this for you. Um, but the book from that is, uh, it's called UFO Missionaries Extraordinary, and it's a, uh, it's an interview with Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles of Heaven's Gate back in the 70s that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like one of those like pulp UFO novels. Uh, uh, you find it like a newsstand or whatever, but it's their own personal copy. So like, it, um, they would have had that you know in their in the mansion since the seventies. It has like a seal from the auction house. It's got some like little notes in it and stuff. So it's it's you know the personal copy of this interview with the leaders of Heaven's Gate, owned by the leaders of Heaven's Gate. Um, yeah, and it's just like there's, there's only one of those anywhere ever, right? That that for me is always my holy grail items. Is the is the even if it's not like a super popular or super notable thing, like one of the bunk beds, for instance, it's just such a uh, unique one off, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I'm uh I'm based out of San Diego, and so like it's throughout my life um, that that case has been brought up. And I've talked to people who were like, oh, yeah, I was I was there when that happened. I was stuck in traffic when they were, like, taking all the bodies out of the house. And uh, I've, I was at a skate park, and I met a kid who said that one of his family members was uh, one of the members that committed suicide. And it's, it's uh, crazy that how much of an impact even up till to this day that that event had uh, within, within my community, that so many people have vivid memories of that taking place yeah it, it it was a such a unique thing like if you think about jonestown right like 900 people died and a majority of them were from san francisco so if you're in san francisco there's a lot of people who have connections right because there were just so many people but if you think of that heaven's gate only had 39 members at that time and for that to have an impact um where you know it was such a big thing in the media it's still a big part of popular culture it was i think it was just such a unique a unique thing that a lot of people got involved with that story back then you know just because nothing like that had ever happened before nothing like that has ever happened since um it was like the only you know like futuristic science fiction cult suicide that's ever happened yeah and and honestly i hearing i think that this kind of collecting can get get a bad rap, but the fact that you were directly involved in helping that family, I think, really shows that uh, this isn't as horrific or as dark as a lot of people think it is, too. So, yeah, I, I, I personally, I um, 
100% understand where people are coming from when it comes to, you know, drawing a line at certain items or certain criminals or certain cases, you know, or even like thinking that the whole hobby in general is distasteful. Like I, I 100% can understand and respect why people feel that way. Um, it's not something that I feel personally. I enjoy, enjoy it as a hobby. Um, I don't have any kind of moral qualms with it, but I'm, I'm, I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, just suck it up, you know, like let people do what they want to do. I don't have that attitude, you know, I understand why people wouldn't like it and would be upset or offended. And I'm, I try and be as respectful as I can about that, you know, I'm not trying to interact with people or talk to people or cause any confrontations. Um, I just kind of like want to keep my head down and do what I enjoy, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that kind of made me think, though. Is there is there a, an item or a, a case that you just don't touch because it crosses a line to you, or is there is is there a line? Uh, nothing's nothing's come up that's been um, that I've had those kind of feelings towards. You know, I know a lot of people. Um, uh, a lot of people, I think, have the opinion that, you know, if you start drawing one or two lines, you kind of got it. There's no end to it. You know, if you're like, oh, I, I don't collect from this kind of killer or this sort of person, then it, it, it's kind of like a, a, a too many abstract barriers, right? Like for, for me, I'm, I try and find whatever I can that's interesting it's all about historical historical significance as far as I'm concerned and then there's things that I wouldn't want for myself for my own collection um but you know somebody else would so you know I'll sell those items or trade those items just because I'm not I don't personally want them but there's not anything that I'm like very uncomfortable specifically with or um trying to avoid specifically you know it's at least not yet you never know something could change my mind or something could come up but I um I just think of it as like a, a, I'm just open to seeing what's out there no matter what, right? Yeah, definitely. I feel that. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of a moral relativist, and I think that people, especially with this, like, if you're going to collect Dahmer memorabilia, but, like, say the Chris Watts case was too much for you, like, well, there's victims on both sides, (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. and you can cherry pick one case being more horrific than the other but i mean i think it is i don't know it is what it is uh but um kind of on that same coin like yeah you helped that family but have you ever had a victim a family families of victims or anything like that or anyone like contact you and giving you any issues with anything like we were talking about um we were talking about the i found a, a casey bernal uh signature from the from the Columbine shooting and uh I was I was I was thinking like I wonder if anyone's ever contacted you or contacted anyone that you're aware of uh like upset that you're selling things that are that are related to any kind of case um I've had some people on like social media leave comments and stuff or, or say like uh why would anybody want this and then it'll be on a, a post with like a hundred, two hundred likes, so that are people who are really interested in it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're kind of like the um, 
people kind of get the feeling like, well, why are, why are you looking through this kind of stuff and, and uh, exposing yourself to it if it's not something you're interested in, right? Like, um, I never had like a direct personal thing where somebody, um, where somebody reached out to me or, or maybe like there was a, some kind of news article. You'll see sometimes like news articles about people's collections, like, uh, that seems to cause a big stir or there's people that'll go on talk shows and, and to like, you know, justify their collections or speak about it and stuff, which is totally fine. But I feel like those, those kind of people are the people that get that a lot to mm-hmm. see people who are putting themselves out there publicly, you know, like I'm not, um, I don't really promote my site too much. I don't really have ads or anything. I just have my, uh, uh, Instagram and I post things and share stuff there. Um, and I think that it, it, it kind of stays within the community, you know, like it's kind of, um, there's a specific market for people who are interested in this kind of stuff and looking for this kind of stuff. And I think people that have a problem with it, it's easy enough for them to avoid as long as you're not kind of putting it in their face. Right. I never made any efforts to, um, do any kind of appearances or, or, uh, have like a physical pop-up shop or, or event or anything. Um, I mean, I, I might, I might in the future. Right. But yeah, I never had any kind of direct conversation with people. I, I try and keep everything as tasteful and respectful as I can, um, in the way I present it and the way I source items and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, maybe I just been lucky that I haven't had too many people, um, bothered by it but that being said like i said a minute ago i i understand why somebody would be and i would never be offended or or frustrated or upset that somebody else was um had an issue with it yeah yeah definitely i mean i i get similar experiences uh with my youtube channel and the films that i cover especially if i say it's something i don't really i'm not a huge fan of like i did a review of the Junko Furuta exploitation films and a lot of people were like why do you have these if you don't like <laughs> if you don't like them and I'm like well it's a, still an interesting case and I think it's good to study but a lot of comments I get from people are like upset that that this exists and it's like well you had to go through some some avenues to get here this wasn't I didn't shove this in your face and yeah, I think that's kind and... of the <coughs> for that yeah. um sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you there was... oh, go ahead for that specific thing, like uh, uh, juvenile crime specifically, the only version I've ever seen, and I've uh, uh, had a physical VHS tape um, that was su- supposedly an original, and I've, I've seen versions online. The only versions I've ever seen are horrible quality. Like there's a lot of static and a lot of um, interference. Like it seems like the best version you can get is already pretty destroyed and pretty thoroughly worn out mm-hmm. um so like letting that go to waste and just not exist anymore is kind of uh, uh there's, there's something to be said for archiving something like that right like if people are think that things like that are distasteful and stuff and it's like yeah well it could be the case but if you just get rid of it forever then people are just going to be talking about oh remember that that thing that used to exist that uh uh it, it's not remember when they destroyed all that stuff or burnt all those paintings or this or that right because people didn't like them it's like well now they just have the story of you know that thing being destroyed and they don't there's no kind of um history of the of the film or of the item in question well i think it actually highlights 
highlights it even more and gives it more attention once the more something is harder to obtain or if it or if it's lost forever it becomes uh i don't know infamous and uh gets more attention than it would have if it just kind of existed i think yeah um with your expertise uh i was and your knowledge of just this this kind of collecting um what are some of the most sought after items that that you see people searching for um i think people always gravitate towards the big names at least maybe at least early on in collecting like um people want to have uh, item from items from ramirez from jeffrey dahmer and uh, gacy paintings um any kind of like the big notorious cases you would uh, uh know about for, for call specifically jonestown is probably the biggest one and then heaven's gate right behind that um which is totally fine people want to collect bigger popular things but those tend to be the ones that have the highest demand uh, uh value-wise right for instance like Jeffrey Dahmer was in jail for like just under or just over a year before he was killed. So the amount of letters he wrote in jail is extremely small, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you've seen some of his letters, a lot of them are typed too. So at some point he got a typewriter and stopped handwriting letters. So you, the, the period in which he was producing handwritten letters from prison was maybe six months, five months, right? Yeah. There's only gonna be so many of those things. And then you got to think back to the fact that in 1993 and 1994, uh, true crime wasn't as big of an interest for people, so not many people were writing inmates. Um, so the more kind of niche notorious you get or the farther back you go, um, the more sought after things are, but also the pricier they are, right? Because it's just uh, uh, really restricted to find, you know? Like um, Ted Bundy, for instance, his stuff is all very expensive because it's so old, but a lot of people want it because they want to have the big cases, you know. Even um, a more recent one that I can think of is uh, Ed Kemper. He wasn't really like a big name um, until Mindhunter came out. Like people people knew about him. He was in um, uh, what's that movie? The Killing of America. It had a, it had a big interview with him and then he was on he was sampled on a dystopia album and there was like a bit of a niche interest in him mm -hmm. um but my hunter kind of blew it up and then a lot of people wanted to start collecting his stuff but he had a stroke in 2007 or something and stopped writing people and i think before that he was pretty private anyway so he's not somebody that produced a ton of content that's out there and he's not actively making new stuff right so uh whenever cases are popular those are the things gravita people gravitate towards um but yeah the more popular things get the more restrictive it is when you're trying to find items you know i'd, l I'd love to be able to personally have like a, a section of my shop where i have one or two letters from every big name um just for the sake of having like a, a cool gallery to look at right or having just a, a good draw for people but it's really hard to even find one item from these people sometimes at a price that isn't just like through the roof obscene you know yeah do you think that uh the the value of something uh diff is contingent on 
just how many pieces are available or do you think their death plays a factor because you talked about like richard ramirez but richard ramirez had a lot of stuff out there but was did you see a a change in value of items after he died um it it depends piece to piece like uh uh I think the easiest example, probably the the maybe the face of murderabilia, as people would put it, is the John Wayne Gacy's Pogo the Clown painting, right? Mm-hmm. And he painted, it was the, <clears throat> the most popular one he did. He had tons of them. He painted hundreds of Pogo the Clown, and then he had Patches the Clown, and then he had Goodbye Pogo, which is the Pogo the Clown flipped, right? Mm-hmm. And like back in the '90s, his stuff was available. Like there were comic books that had mail order forms for. Gacy paintings, and he would do them from prison, and you'd send the guy, you'd send a guy money, and then he would go visit Gacy, get the paintings, and send them out, right? So that one specifically, there's like they're they're numbered even, so people kind of have a rough idea of how many he did, but that's still one of the most um, one of the most collected things is those original paintings, and the price on them is been steady like forever. Like it's not like oh, people know there's a thousand of this, so it's cheaper mm-hmm. um when it comes to a guy like ramirez uh his does it cheaper and easier to find just because he wrote so many people so much and did all of if you ever seen his drawings they're really really bad and they're just like pen outlines of cartoon characters and stuff and he just made so much of it that it's sought after but it's a bit oversaturated you know yeah um What's a what's a typical price for a Gacy Pogo painting? Um, usually you see him from four to five thousand dollars U.S. Um, and he's got like other paintings that are popular that he did way less of that are worth much much more, or paintings he really only did like there's only one example of the painting he did. Um, but yeah, that price is that's a that's a four four to five grand is a fairly high price for any one item at all um and the fact that you know there's lots of these paintings out there and they still drive that demand it it kind of i think uh plays to the fact that you know that's a part of pop culture now like that's the anybody who collects that's like the number one thing that is the most recognizable it's like you know celebrities have purchased them i think johnny depp had a pogo um john waters had one like it's just become a famous item right so that's only ever gonna be going up in value they're never gonna make any more or anything yeah um yeah that's interesting um i think this is a good segue into talking about uh being the pen pal uh inmate pen pal community that exists and i know that you uh are in communication with a handful of different uh individuals and i was wondering how did you get into uh writing to writing to inmates uh what inspired you to first start doing that um it was just like a a bit of a natural evolution maybe of of, um of collecting stuff like i there's certain certain cases where i was like oh this is a this is a unique case there's not really anything out there maybe I'll, i'll contact that person directly because they're still alive and they're in jail maybe they'll write oh sorry maybe they'll write back um so at first yeah i was kind of just like oh people you know, to collect some personal more personal items uh, and then as time went on i found certain people were interesting to write to and kept in contact with some and then um 
I sort of started changing my attitude to from, oh, I just like to collect a bunch of these to uh, uh, I want to reach out to people who I think might be interesting to talk to um, and have a conversation with. And I'm not just, you know, doing like a template letter and hoping to hear applies. Like I'm actually learning about these people and talking to these people. Um, yeah, so it was just like a natural kind of evolution of, of um, oh, I collect things here and look for things here. Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll look down this avenue and then it sort of um, became a hobby in itself, you know? Yeah, yeah. One of my first, like, my introduction to people writing to inmates was a book called The Last Victim. And it's about this this kid who wrote to a lot of the big name people. And he basically, like, altered his personality uh to to fit what he thought those people liked and uh i was wondering for you personally when you write to inmates um do you are you very honest with kind of who you are as a person what you do or or do you uh kind of structure your initial letter to them so that they are likely to write back to you um i always just write as myself i never really uh, pretended to be anybody else or kind of I never I don't necessarily talk about my website and what I do but I, I don't hide anything like that right like I'm not I'm not trying to be deceitful in any way mm-hmm. um, not that I think that's a problem people want to do that so they can collect or whatever that's totally fine or or in that case if they wanted to do that so they could write a book and get a lot of um, um, you know big name responses like go for it right but yeah for me personally I I, I wasn't looking at any point to like um you know mail people so i can get letters or, or artwork to sell or um to like compile it into a book or something it was just or, or for any like journalism reasons right like maybe people are doing interviews for some kind of uh, uh journalism project but i just wanted to have conversations with people because it seemed interesting you know mm-hmm. um like not not all people in prison are you know serial killers or or um, have done uh, uh, you know despicable crime there's a lot of like white collar crime that I'm interested in there's a lot of like uh, 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 like heists and robberies and just like other interesting things that are not um, as evil so to say you know mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of people tend towards oh I just want to write the nastiest most brutal people ever um, <clears throat> which again is totally fine but i've always just want to talk to people who i think are interesting this case is interesting you know somebody who's been in prison for 40 years for something that was like relative to now not really a big deal but they just kind of get stuck in the system and this their life now is just uh uh you know that's that's their life forever like talking to people like that you know who might um appreciate having somebody to have a discussion with yeah. Is your initial, like, intention when you write to someone uh, in, t- in in hopes that they're going to talk to you about their crimes? Um, or do you talk to people just about uh, other topics? Uh, I just kind of write about whatever. I, I, I always, I mean, I know a lot of people will, um, like you were saying, kind of, like, adopt a different personality, or a lot of people pretend to be uh, uh, uh a woman to get like a male inmate's attention um but I, I 
I don't, I've never had any kind of specific um, motive for writing anybody. Like, mm-hmm. aside from just, oh, this person seems interesting, I'd like to have a conversation, right? I've talked about cases with people sometimes, but only when they've brought it up. Because um, I think that, you know, every, every kind of aspect of a person's personality and what they're like kind of plays into their crime in some way, right? Like, they, they ended up where they are for a reason. Um, uh, and it wasn't just specifically, oh, I did this one mistake one time. I mean, that happens, but generally it's, you know, there's there's some other things going on that lead to um, that crime, right? So just getting to know the people's personality and, and what their, like, normal everyday is like or what their perception of reality is like is what I find interesting. Um, I don't, I'm not, like, opposed to talking about people's cases at all, but I, I've never specifically asked just because it's not... Um, it's not really my main, my main reason for reaching out. I think there's definitely a, a craft or a, a level, a, almost like a psychological skill that is needed um, that you obviously have when writing to inmates because I think that they probably get letters, hundreds or thousands of letters all the time from people asking them to talk about their crime or to, to write to, to them or anything like that and to be able to construct a letter or or initiate a conversation that makes you stick out to the point where that person's going to continue to talk talk with you I think is a is a skill I mean I've I've made a few attempts to write to inmates and haven't had any success um, I've also tried to write to pretty high profile people but it does it does seem to be uh, a, a social skill that that's required to be able to do that because I'm sure that they're just getting hundreds of letters all the time yeah I, I think it's like almost like a <clears throat> there's two ways you can go with it where either a you're putting a lot of effort and precision and thought into things to kind of cater your conversation for that person specifically mm-hmm. um and you'll hear back from them or on the uh, on the other end of things i think that there's a um um like a specific kind of like genuineness where where people understand that you want to have a conversation with them and it's not about like um like uh uh their crime specifically right like if you were to if you were to bump into a celebrity and just start listing off all their movies and things you like that they did and all these things like they're not necessarily going to be super receptive to um you know having a conversation with you whereas if you bump into somebody and speak to them like a normal regular person I, you know, I think a lot of people are more receptive to that kind of thing, right? So, um, yeah, I think there's, there's, it's, it's a bit of luck and a bit of just, um, have being genuine and people being able to really perceive that, you know, like that you're putting an effort into, you know, maybe talking about something they're interested in or, um, uh, asking them certain things that maybe people aren't asking, you know, and just, uh, um, yeah, I think just regular conversational skills, which I'm not necessarily the best at, but, um, like I haven't heard back from everybody I've ever written. Uh, but it, you know, there's a certain kind of persistence and genuineness pay off with that. I think that that in the long run works a lot better than any kind of, um, manipulations or, or bribery sending somebody like money online or um 
uh, uh, you know, trying to play something up for that specific uh, inmate so you can guarantee hearing back, right? Yeah. I think that, I mean, we've talked about this, uh, but people write to inmates with different motives in mind. You know, there's people who want to write a book. There's people who want to collect, uh, collect letters and things like that. And then there's people who want to just have a genuine conversation with them. And it seems like you're someone who is interested in, in actually having some kind of relationship with these people. And I think that a lot of people listening are kind of interested in, in the psychology behind that kind of relationship, because, uh, Obviously not everyone you're talking to, but some of the people that you're talking to have done some pretty heinous things. And uh, how do you maintain having a, a relationship with someone knowing that that person has done something so horrific and still treating them like a, a normal human being? I, well, I think that a big part of it for me is that I, I know every single thing about this person going into it, right? Like if I'm interested in writing somebody i can look up everything about their entire lives online i can read several books about it depending on who the person is right like i'm, I'm gonna know everything they did and as much as the information's available why they did it mm-hmm. um and you know there was a situation where i'm like oh I'm, i don't want to talk to that person because i think this thing was so terrible or i think that you know i something rubs me the wrong way either attitude or what kind of a person they are um i don't have to write them right like i'm not gonna lose out on anything by not writing them mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I mean i've written people who've done some bad stuff for sure but um i'm not like i'm not sending this person money i'm not congratulating this person on what they did or being like that's rad you know i'm not um uh, trying to do anything to like encourage or perpetuate stuff like that it's just uh, for me just strictly from a point of being interested in learning about this person in a way that you're not going to find um, somewhere else right like if you're reading a uh, unless you're reading like somebody's autobiography that they wrote which isn't it's a rare occurrence right that you'll have somebody in prison doing an autobiography um, and it'll come out completely uncensored the way they wanted it right Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get the actual full scope of their personality, like, especially from like a documentary or a book somebody else has written about them. Um, so for me, yeah, e- even if somebody did something really terrible, I, I'm still, if I'm interested enough to write them, it's because I want to know what that person's uh, uh, actually like, like to have a conversation with, you know? I, I think it, it's probably a morbid curiosity more than anything, but um, uh, yeah, like like if I ever didn't want to write somebody or even got something back from somebody and didn't want to continue talking to them, I've got no obligation to, right? Like I can just leave it at that if it was ever something that was upsetting me or, or that felt like it was pushing my boundaries or um, something I was morally not okay with. Yeah, I mean, that really resonates, man, because I, because, I mean, that's basically what this podcast is, you know? I talk with all kinds of people who I may not agree with, um, Mm -hmm. or who have done things, like I had Nico Clow on here, and uh, I had to ask, I asked him what eating human flesh is like, and uh, Mm -hmm. that was, that's a, that's a unique opportunity to have, you know? And it's not that I'm sitting there endorsing, (laughs) endorsing that, but uh, 
I mean, it's rare. It's it's rare that you get to sit down and actually have that kind of conversation with someone. And those are, I think, questions that everybody uh, is would love to ask if they had the opportunity. And so I I definitely mm-hmm. understand uh, understand that approach for sure. I mean, that's that's yeah. the very reason I've I've reached out and tried to contact certain inmates is I would love to hear from their own mouth or their own writing. Uh, their perception of of the actions that they've committed and uh, mm-hmm. yeah I think that that all really really makes sense and I think that it's a it's a unique human skill that you have in being able to do that um, yeah I'm not so I'm not saying that it's I know some people don't think you should get these hit with the light of day I'm not trying to say that it's a good thing to do or a bad thing to do either way it's up to your own discretion right like it's something that i that i enjoy doing but it's not affecting other people i'm not you know shoving it in other people's faces and saying oh look what i did look who i heard from or whatever it's just something that i'm personally doing and enjoying myself privately and then i speak about it time to time when when somebody's interested but you know it's like like i think a lot of people have hobbies that it's just their own thing they do and then uh, i'm sure that people wouldn't want to hear about it all day long if they were also interested in that, right? So it's just uh, uh, easy to let let people do what they want to do if it's not hurting people, you know? Well, and I think that it's easy for people to sit on a high horse and point fingers and say, uh, like, I, I actually have gotten a lot of shit from people um, about my own, my own murderabilia collection and stuff like that. And I'm like, dude, anytime a true crime document, true, like, true crime is one of the most popular genres on Netflix. You know, they come mm-hmm. out with a documentary on on uh, Bundy or or they have or back in the 90s when they had prime time interviews with Dahmer like that that everyone tuned in to check that out we all yeah. have we all have a fascination with that kind of stuff and so I mean the the, the degree of how far you're going to dive into to it is different from person to person <clears throat> but it's so I like I uh, I talked about the uh, Junko Furuta uh, review that I did and I got a lot of shit for that and I'm just like I know for a fact that you're so stoked for the next uh, next uh, season of uh, making a murderer to come out like don't sit here and tell me that I'm uh, abnormal from the interest that everyone has with this kind of stuff I mean so I I think that it's a, it's just kind of a spectrum of how how deep people are willing to go into exploring this this fascination that we have with these kind of people but it seems to be pretty mainstream that everyone has a fascination with this topic to a degree yeah the, the thing that I think about in that regard sometimes is that I think the biggest argument against the uh, uh, murderabilia true crime cult stuff is that uh, as like a with the website I should say is that people are like well you're making money off of these crimes and these victims and stuff and it's like I, I understand what people are saying there but like the guy who directed um you know somebody who, who directs or, or produces or writes a, a a big true crime profile a high profile true crime show on netflix is gonna make more off of that one thing than i'm ever gonna make in my entire life with my website you know like it's it's uh, it, it, the, the 
the kind of gray areas for you know profiting off of these crimes is is strange. People don't want to see inmates make money off of their paintings, you know. So when now that Casey's dead, for instance, people I think are a little more okay with his paintings being sold because he's not making money. Um, or if you know if they make a documentary and they don't have any kind of royalties or money paid out to the uh, criminals are profiling in it, then mm. that's better for some people. And if if somehow um, that person was receiving some kind of money, right, and profiting off of it, but um, yeah, there's there's just so many layer, layers to peel to peel back of gray areas and moral lines and boundaries in with most things in life, but especially with this when it comes into uh, uh, true crime is is there's way too much um draw you got to draw your own boundaries with it right and I, I, everyone's entitled to feeling how they feel about it but mm-hmm. uh, yeah people need to just um i think people need to realize that you know they're playing into that as well you know if they consume this type of media but don't consume this other type of media it's 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 all the same in the end yeah i mean i, I think it's true I mean, people could be mad about uh, Quentin Tarantino with his uh, his most recent film that he made and capitalizing off of the uh, the Sharon Tate murder, you know. So, mm-hmm. I I mean, I think people tend to be inconsistent with their moral guidelines that they have with certain things. Yeah, like juvenile crime. Going back to that, mm-hmm. it's a really disgusting movie. It's it's like it's a hard thing to sit there and watch the whole thing all the way through. Like it's not something that you're gonna comfortably, enjoyably watch from the beginning to end. But it made compared to, for instance, my friend Dahmer, which was like a very critically acclaimed movie. It made no money compared to that. It like one one th- thousandth of a person people even know it exists let alone saw it it was profiling you know a, a crime where there was one victim as opposed to a crime with Dahmer where there were 14 or 15 or 17 um however many victims he had right like but that movie is seen as so much more expletive and negative even though it had such a smaller impact in the grand scale of things yeah yeah definitely and that, and I think that there's I still think that there's a lot of things good that can come from that like especially if you're looking at the Junko Furuta films I mean those films came out from from when the case happened all the way up till 2017 there was a film that came out uh, related to it and they're all exploitation films and I think that that really says a lot about society and says a lot about people's attitudes especially towards like the exploitation of women and the fact mm-hmm. that this this girl had this horrible experience happen to her, one of the most horrific deaths I've ever read about in my entire life. And there's she doesn't have... There's not much out there except for stuff from books that have been written that, are, that never were translated outside of Japanese. The stuff that exists within the world about her, her legacy is just these these exploitation films and I says and I think that can be studied from a sociological uh standpoint and and mm-hmm. I think it says a lot about society and I think a lot of people can have this attitude like well these films should just we should just get rid of these films but I, but the fact that you can kind of follow this 
timeline from when that within the same year that she uh, died, they came out with an exploitation film, and that 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 has continued on all the way up till 2017. <clears throat> so shows how much of as a, as a society how much we've changed, which is yeah, not a lot. <laughs> so that, that, and that's a specific great example too, because if you can look at it from the beginning to end, and it, the movies as they came, all four of the films are decreasingly offensive and had a de- decreasing um, amount of um, impact in terms of like people being offended or upset mm-hmm. but they also had a increasing budget and increasing popularity like I, I think that the the two more concrete was 2004 right and then the even newer film I think those two were the most popular probably made the most money had the most um, the most uh uh, exposure, but also were the least um, criticized, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, Feruda, which is the most recent film for 2017, like, no one even talks about it. I mean, mm-hmm. so, no, and no one made that big, big fuss about it. You know, if people actually cared, people would be like, I can't believe in 2017 they're making another exploitation film about this this girl. No one said shit. <laughs> no one said a single. No one. There was no protest. No, no, uh, social justice warrior, warriors trying to change anything. No one mm-hmm. cared, and uh, and it's it's kind of a tragedy for her. I mean, for sure. But I, but I also think that it's something that we can study from a social perspective. Yeah, for sure. And but you can only do that if these films remain available. Um, which is kind of my little harp on why censorship should not happen. But, uh, Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, kind of talking about films though, uh, you have kind of a little section on your website where you have digitized, um, lost tapes or, or, or very hard to obtain tapes and have done limited runs on those things, which I think is a huge service for a lot of people because especially a lot of the things that you've digitized are things that people, uh, unless they're willing to throw down hundreds of dollars and be able to find these items, um, they're, it, it's basically impossible to get. And so, um, and I know you have a Patreon, and I know on your Patreon um, you have kind of a catalog of films that are available too. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, kind of that project that you're doing of digitizing films and making a lot of these really obscure uh, features available. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Um, pretty much all the stuff to do with my website, I do because I'm interested in it, right? Like, mm. if you if you look through there, it's not necessarily all true crime stuff. There's other little facets of just kind of like obscurity or, or oddities or weird things because I have an interest in a lot of things like that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that's kind of like a convergence of a lot of things that I am interested in, right? Like, I, I love film in general but I love horror movies I have since I was a kid um and I've always been interested in in weird stuff and hard to find things or obscure things um uh my my brother and I were really into just tracking down strange things back then there was um when I was in high school there was a site that's I think it's still up but the images don't work on it anymore which is a bummer um called snowblood apple I'm gonna really quick to see yeah it's called snowblood apple or uh, mandy mandyapple.com 
and it was just it's like a giant like a to z list of of uh japanese and hong kong <clears throat> splatter movies and exploitation movies and rarities and stuff like like really obscure things that i think even um now some of them will come up and they'll be it'll be like oh i remember reading about that way back when and it's finally getting a release uh, a translator release or something um but i was always super super into tracking down weird things like like weird movies or, or uh, obscene movies or controversial things um and then <clears throat> at a certain point that kind of uh went into the world of lost media right like um uh certain like news broadcasts that happened or happened or um i i was always interested in the more weird and obscure things even if it wasn't like popular or had a super big uh story behind it i just thought some of those things were neat right and a lot of that stuff you just can't find anywhere like the amount of information and media you can access online is um crazy you can get like everything but the things that you still can't find even on the internet even if you're searching everywhere um you're only ever going to get it by chance like somebody pulls it out of a storage unit or somebody happened to be like recording television on a vhs tape at that time in history and then 25 years later they find the tape right like um that stuff was always super fascinating to me um so when i started kind of collecting stuff i would um i spent a lot of time kind of looking to like lost films or lost things or um pieces of media like that like for instance the um anime that Ocean Rikio produced right mm-hmm. I knew that they had done an anime series but I had seen only some a couple episodes online and I was like well there's theoretically like 12 episodes they theoretically did a full season um so I spent a long time trying to find um <clears throat> see if I could find any of those tapes online and I <clears throat> got lucky and just bought a very expensive poorly labeled um japanese vhs tape that i wasn't even sure was on it and i got lucky and found an episode of the show that wasn't uploaded online um but that's kind of been the case with all of the um things i've released i know that um <clears throat> there's a lot of sites where people will kind of archive and and put together um hard to find films and sell bootlegs or whatever and that's totally fine because a lot of that stuff you can't get it otherwise and it's good to be able to have those resources but all the stuff that i've been um i guess archiving and searching for and putting out is like more unique to unique catered to my interests right like i've got some interviews with um high-ranking members of ocean rikyo like a uh like a two-hour interview tape it's all in japanese not translated um just a guy sitting in front of a white wall having a conversation but it's like a it's like an interview that nobody's really ever seen since it was broadcast on tv in japan 20 years ago right mm-hmm. um anyway yeah the more the more weird and obscure you can get with that kind of stuff the more interested um i've always been and that's led to me putting a lot of effort into trying to track down um media that not even hard to find media but media that people don't even know existed like things that just were a total fluke that they happened to to be preserved somewhere and um yeah bringing a bit of attention to that 
it's it's not something that has a huge appeal. It's a, it's a very 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 niche appeal for other people. But for me personally, I I love the idea of having um, this collection of all these um, interviews or TV broadcasts or uh, uh, movies that you know nobody's even heard of before. Yeah, yeah, I totally I totally agree with that. I mean that's. I, that's what I when I first started Putrid Productions that what that's what I was doing I was I called it a conservation archival outfit and was basically just trying to uh, make an archive of this lost kind of media so I definitely that's one of the things that really attracted attracted me to your website and the stuff that you do is I think that that's a necessary service because there is the risk of a lot of these kind of things just being lost forever you know there's like some of the tapes that you've digitized, like there's only a, a handful of those tapes available, and once they're gone, these things could be gone forever. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that the, the the one that I specifically really think is cool is the um, <clears throat> I have a tape that's it's like five and a half hours of of news footage from the week of when Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested, but it's recorded off of TV in Milwaukee at that time with all the commercials. Um, and like it's just five hours of continuous news coverage uh, over a few days as if you were watching it in Milwaukee at that time right well that's fascinating um, that's really cool I didn't think to go out and look for that tape like I never would have thought that existed anywhere I got it by chance in a collection of books that had a few tapes with it Um, not not even knowing what the tapes were I was like okay there's a handful of Jeffrey Dahmer books here that somebody's compiled together and some interesting ones so I'll buy that and I'll have the whole collection at once and it had these tapes that somebody had made um, like I had the Insider Edition interview and stuff which is you can find on YouTube but yeah that specific one was like okay well this is you know nobody's seen this except for the person that recorded this on VHS if they've watched this tape since then they've seen it but nobody else since it was broadcast on TV at that time has seen this specific collection of interviews and footage and commercials and stuff um, and that that specific tape was very motivating to look for other things that um, um, people haven't um, haven't seen since it, they came out since they were created. Yeah, uh, that's I love finding stuff like that. I mean, uh, I found a it was I don't remember how long it is. It's maybe an hour long, and it's like just raw police footage of them exploring Gacy's, uh, underneath Gacy's house, and it's really grainy, and it's like, it's just almost like this handheld camera kind of stuff, but finding, just finding things like that are are, I think significant, but also just kind of like this this oddball thing that you have in your collection, <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure, yeah, and there, there's a lot of, like, famous <clears throat> uh, lost media out there, a lot of, like, clips and video that people know of where they're like uh like the armin mivis video where he's got like hours and hours and hours of footage where he's like butchering a body right that Mm -hmm. that physically exists in some police locker somewhere in germany but it's never been released it's never going to be a lot of people kind of strive to find those things where it's like okay well people know that it's a real thing but it's just not gonna logistically happen but i think that for me, the most interesting stuff is just when you stumble upon something that, like, um, um, that you didn't expect, right? I think that's a big that's a big thing with 
people who are uh, enthusiastic about VHS is finding home recordings of stuff or home videos or um, weird things that you wouldn't have ever known existed, right? Until they until they come up. Yeah, yeah. I think you, I think you definitely hit on an interesting topic uh, of like media that isn't lost but is just unobtainable. Kind of like the Columbine basement tapes. Um, or like Steve Irwin's death, um, mm-hmm. people want to find those things, and I don't know. I mean, there's probably one copy of that that exists, and who knows if it got terminated or or anything like that. But but finding ones that don't have that same kind of recognition, uh, I think, are are just as equally exciting of a find. Um, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh. On your website, you also have uh, different kind of mixtapes, and uh, one that really stood out to me was buying into your timeshare in hell, which uh, was described as being similar to the insuring your place in hell uh, tape. And I was wondering, uh, were these things that you created or things that you found? Um, where did these mixtapes come from? Um, that one specifically, uh, insuring your timeshare in hell is like very... Well, I don't know if it's very well known, but it's like a infamous collection, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just such weird content. It's it's people still don't know who put it together. I don't think people still don't know um, if grave robbing for dummies is real. Like there's just so much mystery around it. <clears throat> and that was one of the one of the movies way back when, uh, or one of the compilations, I should say, way back when that I was super fascinated by. Um, however many years ago when I found it. Uh, anyway, since that time, I've come across so much weird stuff and so many, um, like, strange videos or, or clips or just little segments that I have always stuck in my head as being really interesting. Like, even some stuff on YouTube that had, like, 15 views that has been on YouTube for 10 years, you know? Like, and I, I have no idea how I came across it in the first place, but it just happened to be... Um, something that stuck with me and nobody's ever seen it. So I, I, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, uh, that was like a one day project where I was like, you know what, I've got all these things in my head that I, that I know that most people haven't seen. Um, it'd be fun to just stick them together and then people are going to see it and be like, this is where did this even come from? Um, yeah, it was a spiritual uh, successor to the to ensuring your place in hell. Just in the sense of, uh, I had all these kind of little segments that I thought would be interesting to put together that I think a lot of people would be confused about and unsure uh, what the story goes behind them, you know. And just I like the idea of just putting it out there and and letting people find it and be confused. Yeah, that's cool, man. Well. Uh, I think uh, that's all I really have in terms of questions for you. Um, uh, before we come to an end, is there anything that you want to plug, anything that you want to say to uh, your your fans, your customers, um, it's your opportunity to really promote what you're doing? Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks to everybody for um, all of the um, support over the past couple of years, especially recently. It's, things have... Um, ramped up a little bit I've had a lot of people give me good feedback positive feedback about uh, what I'm doing which is great because 
it's when it came to like collectibles and thrifting i you know it was easy to get burnt out but this is something that i'm getting a lot of encouragement for now that i've found a bit of a niche here um that helps me stay motivated to keep doing things and to keep pouring crazy amounts of money into it and not being too scared that it's going to just totally blow up in my face um my main uh uh social media is my instagram at call collectibles for uh i post a lot of the stuff on the site there i interact with people there that's the main way to contact me um my patreon also is called collectibles i've got like a, a 25 dollar tier where i have like a mystery pack that goes out every month and a, a site uh, discount and like tons of perks on it um and it, that just kind of my operating costs are pretty expensive because i'm like a small independent business and i'm making a lot of my own original products um so that's just in an effort to kind of offset that a bit um if people want to check it out uh the site called collectibles.org is where i sell everything uh fridays at 6 p.m uh pst i put up new inventory usually 10 to 30 items a week um and yeah that's about it thanks for um having me on helping me get the word out a bit more of course man i really appreciate that you came on i really enjoyed our conversation and uh i'm sure you and i are going to be talking a lot more in the future so thanks for thanks for everything for sure thank you (laughs) i hope you enjoyed this interview with cult collectibles if you found this discussion interesting make sure to check out my latest release through vile video productions a documentary by Renee Wisner called Michael, A Murderbillion Memoriam. Next week, I'll be having Michael on the show to further this discussion of writing to inmates and murderbilia collecting. Also, if you like this podcast and are interested in checking out more of my work, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Cinema's Underbelly, where I analyze and review extreme underground cinema. And make sure to check out Putrid Productions, where you can get your hands on my most recent film, Barf Bunny. Until next time, This is the Uneasy Train Explorers Club.